Well, hello and welcome to episode 154 of The Cool Room. Uh, my name's David Griffiths. I'm one of your co-hosts. I will shortly introduce my good friend, Warren Wu, who's going to introduce Alex from Slow Lane Brewing. We've got a fantastic lineup of beers to taste tonight. Uh, please buy a pack from our online store, which you can find on Shopify tonight, just so that you make sure you have the right beers in front of you. If you're listening on the podcast, we're going to be tasting the Simple Living, the Regal Authority, the Classic Dark Haze, and then the Liquid Bread. It's a really fun range of beers uh, to round out what has effectively been our online Oktoberfest. There's been some really fun components of that. We've had our old friends from Burnley Brewing on, some great beers there. We were then lucky enough to speak last week with Schlenkler uh, live from Germany. So that was a really big thrill. Go back and check out the archives if you couldn't join us live for that. Uh, we've obviously got a slow lane on tonight. We're going to push Oktoberfest into November when on the 10th of November in Melbourne, the world vice president of Weinstefan uh, is going to join us live in the flesh. Uh, check out our Facebook, check out our Instagram for details about how to come along to that. That's a huge thrill and um, comes off the back of a couple of years of online shows with Weinstefan. Uh, and already we are delivering beers for our November series of, uh, of online interviews. We're going to be joined by Double Vision from New Zealand. Uh, we have Bright Brewery already lined up. Many more fun things. That's my promoing out of the way. I've made it as quick as possible. Warren Wu, how are you? I'm really good, David. Thank you very much for asking. It's, yeah, it's lovely to be sitting here. It's nice. I, <clears throat> it's weird that you said we're rounding out our Oktoberfest Tonight, like tonight's pretty big, but you'd think that you'd think that Weinstefan in at live would be kind of rounding out the whole of those series events, but uh, maybe not. Maybe it is. It'll be sort of mid November by then, and I yeah. know that some people, and some might argue the Germans in particular, are sticklers for things. So I didn't want to. I didn't want to push the fact that first of all, that November the tenth counts as October. I mm. also remember from past episodes that Weinstefan doesn't celebrate Oktoberfest per se. Yeah. They have their own regional festival. And I didn't want to lose that fantastic event because they heard that I'd referred to drinking beer with Weinstefan as Oktoberfest. Um, and like, doesn't Oktoberfest start in September anyway? Yeah. Like someone at Marcus just pointed out, as I know, it starts in September. Why couldn't it end in November? I don't know. Um, but it has been really fascinating whether or not it starts and ends at any point. Um, Does it end? That's the question. I agree. Yeah, will it ever end? No. Um, yeah, all the beers we've been trying and all these amazing styles we've been we've been lucky enough to to be able to sample have been remarkable. Like they've they've just been a that yeah, some of them are a revelation. It's good to revisit different bits and pieces. Um and Slow Lane Brewing's sampler beers is absolutely uh right on the mark when it comes to um just trying really classic German styles and slight, I don't know if there's little, little slow lane takes on different things as well, but we'll find out from Alex when we say hello to him. So hi, Alex. <laughs> hi, Warren. Hi, everyone. How are you, brother? I'm pretty good. Joining it's us good. from sunny Seattle. Huh? Perth. <laughs> yeah, it's only 3.30 here, a few hours earlier. So you know, normally we say, we ask people to sort of explain where in the world their brewery is and give us a bit of a rundown, but we're going to, we'll talk about Sydney and Botany in a minute. Yeah. What's happening in Perth? Uh, we've got a beer festival we're doing here on Saturday. Um, there's a main liquor, one of the big bottle shops over here is having like a car park party. Um, they've been good supporters of us since we started and invited us over. So we thought we'd do to get over this side of the country and um, try and sell some more beer. So yeah, explore it for a few days. Do you do you have much of a, a market in Perth? Like, uh, do you get a fair bit of your stuff over there? I'm assuming you because you're there, you you're either interested or you do, or you want a holiday. Yeah, like if, I guess it's a holiday. Had, but yeah. yeah, I mean, from when we started, we've always had interest from Perth, like just people hitting us up, telling us we should send up here to Perth. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, some good customers over here. Like logistically, it's really difficult. Um, so we need to like sell a bit more beer here to make it worthwhile. So that's, I guess, part of the trip is to try and like, I think it's a good market. Like there's um, good customer base and it's good venues, good bottle shops, but yeah, I just have to try and make it work logistically, sending pallets of beer across the country. Um, so, all right, beer festival, great. That's terrific. Um, and it's a weekend, I'm, I'm assuming it's just for the weekend. Yeah, like the beer festival is just on a Saturday. Like I'm only here for, I'm here last night, leave on Sunday. Wow. Yeah. What we what we have to tell the rest of the world, like particularly our German listeners, and we'll have heaps oh, yeah. of them this week, is that in Melbourne, it's close to well, my son has five days off school. So we have uh the Melbourne Cup Carnival on Tuesday, but that means that apparently schools can't go to school on Friday. Saturday, mm. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. So Blakey's got a five-day weekend coming up. So, yeah, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, what beers are you showing over there, uh, Alex? What what are you? Yeah, what what wares are you showing? Before we dive into the the meaty part of the podcast, let's find out a little bit more about about the the life of uh, of selling the the great beers that you produce. Um, we're showing we're showing. Some of the one same ones we're showing tonight. Um, we bring the Calibir. Um, we bring the classic Hayes Hefeweizen, which we're not showing tonight, but another German beer. Um, the we were going to bring the Doppelbock, but I stuffed up the pallet and left it off. So um, when we're showing that, uh, we're doing some of our quite a few sours, which do quite well for us, so like a pineapple sour. Um, a Gosa and a barrel juice, barrel aged sour bread IPA, something a bit different that um, it's going well for us. And yeah, some of our like mainstay beers, like our refractory Belgian blonde, Quake Hazy Pale Ale, uh, we're doing an IPA, Hazy IPA, just to appease everyone. <laughs> Great. Excellent. Excellent. So we should. We should start. Uh, we should have a quick word about the beer that we're we've started on uh, today. So, oh gee, I'm gonna stack, stuff this up. Simple Living Keller Beer Rustic Hazy Lager. Yep. Okay. Cool. Uh, <laughs> is a rustic hazy lager just because you didn't want to leave it in tank as long as it should? What's a rustic hazy lager? Is it? Or is it just to explain what a Keller beer is? To what is a Keller beer? Yeah, let's, let's go to the source. Yeah, I was mainly to explain what a Keller beer is because I assume a lot of people don't know what it is. Um, but yeah, Keller beer essentially means cellar beer and um, I guess traditionally it was like, would have been like aged in like barrels in caves yeah. dug in the ground in um, Bavaria or Franconia, like that kind of region in Germany. Um, and then, yeah, would have traditionally like served kind of fresh, um, just straight from the barrel, like not, not super long lagered or anything. So it would be kind of hazy and, um, not as clean and crisp as like a long lagered lager. Um, and yeah, traditionally over there, it's like served in like opaque mugs. So you can't really see what it looks like. Amazing. Um, and what, what, no, I don't, I'm going to ask that. No, get out, get out of it, David. <laughs> what made you decide on, the, on brewing a Keller beer? What, what was, uh, yeah, what, where, where did, where did the inspiration come from? Uh, I mean, it's been one we've been wanting to do since we started the brewery. Um, when we were setting up the brewery and like waiting for like council approval, um, we went over to, dragged the whole family over to Germany for a research trip. And um, one of the, we went to Munich and a few other places, but one of the places I really wanted to go to was like Franconia region. Um, it's around Bamberg, kind of just north of um, where you know, Munich is. Uh, and then it's like known for having like the most number of breweries per capita. So there's heaps of small little like rustic family breweries. Um, and yeah, they do lots of beers like this. Like most of the, a lot of them are like amber colored rather than like pale color beers. Um, but yeah, yeah, we, you know, wanted to do one and thought like the power one might be more popular. 
I love how you've described that you had to drag your family over to like Franconia to to do research beers. Like it must have been so hard just moving them into like that must be terrible for you. I'm being obviously facetious. Yeah, that's actually very, that's very family friendly. Cut that out. Yeah, um, the Germans have got all worked out. Like they have all these like beer gardens just like in the forest areas, and they have like playgrounds and stuff there. And you know, take the whole family, and the kids can just run around in the playground playground next to the beer garden. And parents just drink beer. beer and- beer garden in a forest area like we're coming up to halloween here and maybe i've sort of you know already got my halloween hat on but if someone invited me to a beer garden in a forest area i'd really worry about what i was getting involved in there yeah. this is like also like you know 11 a.m in the morning it's not like you know ah fruit shopping <laughs> um <clears throat> uh so you guys have Real, it feels like you guys commit to the whole Oktoberfest German beer. Like you really kind of sink your teeth into the, those styles and really try to try to explore a lot of the the lesser known the, the less known styles. Where does that passion come? Like I'm moving on from the why of the Keller beer. Yeah, why yeah. why the German styles? Why are you guys so all in on on it? It feels like it anyway. Maybe you guys yeah. like, take the piss. I mean, we'd, I'd love to make more German styles year round, but um, I guess we use, you know, this time of year as like a, um, you know, a way to make some of these styles that aren't necessarily the most popular, but, you know, mm-hmm. it's easier to sell them this time of year, essentially. Um, like, yeah, I mean, like, if I, if I could, I'd make this stuff the whole time. Um, yeah, yeah we definitely haven't, we do make German beers year round, but we have like increased focus on them. Um, around Oktoberfest time, and yeah. yeah, like we try and do the ones that um, other people aren't necessarily doing. Like, so we like we didn't have a a fest beer or Marzen this yeah. year. We focused on you know Roggen beers and Dunkelweizens and Keller beers. Can, can, uh, can you explain a little bit about what we should be getting out of a Keller beer? Mm-hmm. Because I guess some people will be familiar with the style, particularly in Australia. Some people might find it new you've described it as a rustic hazy lager on the can, but particularly in terms of the flavors that should be coming through and people in the chat. Thank you for everyone who's joined us live on zoom. They're sort of typing questions, about are you getting banana from it or yeasty flavors? What should people expect when they open up a Calabria, particularly a slow lane Calabria? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a super simple recipe. It's just hundred percent German Pilsner malt and um, Hallertau hops and the German lager yeast. Um, so you, but I find like, you know, comparing this to like a, essentially like it's a Hellas recipe, but um, comparing this to like a, a Hellas, um, I get more kind of like doughy kind of bread, kind of kind of raw malt flavors. It's definitely not as clean and crisp. Um, and maybe some more like just yeast flavors that haven't sort of had time to clean up yet. <laughs> Now, look, before we move on, because we've got a really fun lineup of beers ahead of us, but what we haven't done properly is sort of introduce the brewery where people can find it. And particularly, again, for all of our overseas listeners who just continue to grow in number, can you describe, you know, we know you're in Sydney, but where in Sydney you are, what it's like. And I've actually paid a visit to the brewery since last we spoke. So I can add to that. So, Cool. So, so yeah, we're, we're based in the suburb of Botany, which is um, sort of sandwiched between the international and domestic airport and the container port. Um, so it's a somewhat in what's it? Yeah, somewhat industrial area, um, but it's quite close to the city, like only 10k-ish from the city, and then also quite close to the sort of eastern suburbs and beaches of Sydney. Um, and, you know, doesn't have quite as many breweries as Marrickfields because Marrickfields over the other side of the airport and has you know twenty something breweries or whatever it is Still now. Got a um, few. <laughs> we got um so us and One Drop Brewing just down the street, uh, and then there's at least one more at Beer Fontaines opening up soon. Um, so you hopefully get a few more breweries there and make it more of a, a trip for people. Um, so yeah, we've been going two and a half years about 
there. Um, we have like a this a working brewery Monday to Thursday, and then we you know clean it up and pull some chairs and tables out and make it a um, bar, a small kitchen, um, so Thursday to Sunday, um, which is yeah going quite well for us. So we started serving some of our own food. Um, we have live music on Sundays. Um, now I kind of like made the car park into like a sort of outdoor beer garden, so a bit more space. The, the the big question that I had in my mind is that you know it's that sort of how do you have so many different styles of beer? How do you manage to produce so much in what is a really quite small space by even you know a craft brewery standard? I was so struck by that when I was out there. Yeah, I mean that's everyone's reaction. Like that, yeah, hasn't been there before, and um, it is it is a very small space. Um, we try and do what we can in a small space, stacking things, stacking tanks on top of each other, um, and then I guess we do have so obviously we keg and can condition all of our beers, so they naturally carbonate there. So which takes another couple of weeks. So we do have like another mini warehouse that's just filled with pallets of cans waiting to be um released and labelled up and packaged. So there is some more space elsewhere. And, yeah, we have a whole lot of beer and cold storage at other facilities. Well, it's, a, it's an amazing space. We really encourage people to go and visit and drop into one drop and others along the way. Um, I think when we did our special episode after myself and Dave Croft had wandered around Sydney, we commented on the fact that I was up there in the middle of Sydney's wettest month ever at that stage it, feels like you might have broken that record since then melbourne's in its bit of breaking its rain record so i feel well if not right at home i feel damp just like i did when i visited your brewery but the staff up there were absolutely fantastic in terms of how they helped me through the lineup of beers and i think you had like 20 different taps going is that about right um yeah i've had yeah 18 maybe i think we've Paired it back to like 14 taps now, but then we have... There was, um, there was 18 and a couple of special little barrels with things on top of them that I kind of blagged my way into, I think. So a couple of those delicious old school uh, cellar beers that you've got. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think like with, with all the, the cans that we can serve there, we probably would have like 30, 30 different beers at least. You can try. So back to, I think... Back to David's question, because we got excited about the fact that you can do it in the space. Um, how do you do it? Like, is it, is it, does it, is it really hectic? Are you, or are you so organised that you can kind of get the most out of every square centimetre of the, the space? Like it's, yeah, like, or is it, or, or are you just one of these people who can just juggle a whole shit ton of things and it just all happens. Like, yeah, how did, how does it feel for you? Yeah, how do you feel, Alex? Um, I mean, there's definitely a lot of time spent during the week just moving stuff around, trying to make it work in a small space. But um, mm. I'm sure my it's mostly my staff doing that these days rather than me. I'm sure they don't <laughs> don't love that part of it. Um, yeah, more space definitely make it a bit more efficient. Um, I guess like where we're a bit different to some other breweries is like we don't there's no like big core range of beers that we make like huge quantities of um like most beers like we only make once or you know most a couple of times a year um so we can like most a lot of time we're brewing we're brewing like limited releases not core range stuff so yeah i guess that allows us to yeah pump out greater necessarily more volume but more variety mm-hmm. um i reckon now might be a nice time david to move on to the uh to the next bit the you- regal authority i am in the mood to move on to the regal authority i love the name of the beer but i also can i tell you i've spent my day meeting with people and they said uh what are you doing tonight i said i'm going to drink some beers and they said oh what are you going to be drinking and i said a barrel aged 16th century this beer and they said what's that all about i said i'll tell you tomorrow so i really want to hear the full story behind this and um again off the back of a few other breweries that we've had on the basic style i guess we understand but can you start us off with a little tasting tour of what we should see in the glass 
what we should smell on the nose, what we should taste, and then the story about what makes a 16th century vice beer different to a, you know, 2022 one. Sure. Let me just grab my beer. <laughs> that's a fair. That's you do that. I will manage to fill with some content in the meantime. Uh, and particularly just point out to people, you know, October packs uh, are now basically sold out. November packs are the ones that are in the online store. If you want to help us out, if you want to support the podcast, grab yourself a November pack. And um, that's a great way just to make sure that we can keep things ticking over. Not far off December, lots of fun Christmas things. Thinking about a place that we might be able to go and have our December Christmas party. So, oh, yeah. I've, I've heard rumblings about that. That's well, rum, rumblings is the right word. So let's let's figure out what we can do on that front. And uh, December Fest, says Corey. December Fest sounds... <laughs> I can... <laughs> Next, continuation of October fests. I, I have I have a vision that 2023 might be a year of fests. Mm. Yeah, that'd be nice. Rightio. So Alex is back with us. What what is your glass? Hold up your glass to us. What should we be having? Cheers, mate. What what should we be experiencing here? Yeah. So so originally I was going to include our like classic haze Hefeweizen in the tasting. Um mm. that's what I guess the beer has been doing really well for us recently. We've been selling a lot of it. I mean, quite happy with it. But then I remembered we did that last time. So I thought this would be a good substitute. And it's kind of interesting to, you know, compare the two. Um, mm. So essentially this, the base recipe of this beer is like exactly the same as the um, the classic haze and normal Hefeweizen. Um, just, you know, kind of 50% wheat mold, 50% Pilsner mold. Um, it, Basically, no, like very minimal hops, um, and uh, yeah, German kind of Hefeweizen wheat. Um, I said Hefeweizen um, yeast strain, and then yeah, we we basically brew it as the Hefeweizen, and then put it into barrels, so X wine barrels that we previously used for other beers um, with some Britannomyces, just as always looking for things ideas of what to put in barrels. We've got like 40 different barrels now. Um, and thought so we'd just give this a go. Um, and then, yeah, like we tasted it after like three months, I think, four months. And we were like just, um, we were, you know, very pleasantly surprised about how it's tasting. Like we've just got some like very, we thought some very nice bit, bit of acidity, some um, nice kind of character. Like it'd be able to transform a lot in those four months. Um, and we, like, we didn't add any, um, bacteria to this so it's just whatever was living in the barrel um just i thought just yeah it's tasting really great so rather than leave it in longer and risk it going downhill we thought we'd package it up um did you inoc- so when you said you didn't add any bacteria or anything so did you inoculate with Britannomyces? did you yeah oh yes yeah, so brett you did but everything did out of brett, not- yeah and then we everything- tend to we tend to do that because um, I guess one of the things we find, like, because with the Australian climate with barrels, like, is they can kind of, like, oxidise, like, you know, the um, you know the level of the beer will go down in the barrel and, you know, it can get too much oxygen in there, especially for, like, delicate beers like this. So they find, like, putting the, the pitch of, like, Britannomyces in there, like, that was kind of work away and help um, prevent some oxidation. Yep. Um, it's got, it's really funny. It feels like almost a clean Britannomyces character. You know what I mean? It's like, it's bready, but it's, it's just really lovely. And uh, like, there's a fresh, uh, the bread almost adds a freshness to it. Is there a particular style? Like when you, when you're throwing in the Britannomyces, um, do you use, uh, do you pick the strain? I know there's different strains. Like, do do you yeah. have in mind what what strain will work with this particular beer and how you know, is it really precise or yeah? How does and what's the decision behind it? Yeah, so I mean, I really with potato mices, I really like the kind of fruity um, notes you get from it rather than like the super like funky kind of barnyard. Mm-hmm. Kind of character you can get. Like so horse saddle, horse saddles. Yeah, yeah. Mm. wet dog. Yeah. Uh, so essentially, the vast majority of our beers that we 
use brett we use like a, a strain that's known for um yeah producing more of the fruity kind of pineapple tropical fruit kind of flavors so it's a brett c um i can't remember how to pronounce it but um it's this strain that was like kind of originally isolated from british stock ales um oh, yeah. Yeah. um and yeah it's known for like being more fruitful less funky and can I ask, you know, in terms of this, you know, this we've got this 16th century bit there. I want to explore that a little bit. You know, is that the sort of flavours that you have read they might have had back there? What what makes yeah. it that sort of 16th century? Is it just technique or is it just a good bit of marketing? I mean, it's definitely some marketing. Um, I wasn't sure. Like, um, Secret just clone stuff like barrel aged half-wise or something, but, which... Yeah. Oh, look, I'm all, look, a bit boring. Um, but essentially, like, I mean, I think there's some historical accuracy to it, like, in that, like, back then, beer would have been made in wooden barrels and they, you know, there wasn't the knowledge around yeast and bacteria and there wasn't the same, like, um, like cleanliness standards in brewing, so quite likely. And especially with, like, half-wise and types of beers, which I presume in back, well, I presume back then wouldn't have many hops in them. Um, they quite likely would have mm. soured at some point. Um, so, and then I guess this 16th century is when Weiss beer origin- originated in Bavaria from my research. And so, so you, you're touching on there a bit of your knowledge of the history. And we, I find this kind of so fascinating. So essentially what you're saying is that hops add a, a, both a preservative and a, a cleansing sort of effect in in the beer that, and without them that's when you get the souring is that what for newer people is that what you're saying um partly yeah so so definitely like um if we put a lot of hops in this beer like it wouldn't have soured in the barrel um and then yeah just like it's the fact that but if we put this in a tank like it wouldn't have Soured because it would have been clean, but yeah, it was obviously something living in the barrels that soured it. Um, <clears throat> Mark's asked a question in the chat, and I think I I feel like I know the answer. But what wine was in the barrel prior? Like, does when it gets to you guys, when it get when a barrel, and I've always been interested when a wine barrel gets to to a to a brewery. How much does what previously was in the barrel dictates how you use it? And then how long does that process kind of last that you, you, you're thinking about what was in, in that original barrel? Yeah. Um, so, like, the wine, this, with my experience, doesn't have as much of an impact on the beer as mm-hmm. I thought it might. Like, it's not yeah. like putting beer in, like, a spirit barrel. Like, mm-hmm. wine's just not as, like, dominant a flavour. Yep. Um, so even though like when we got the barrels, they were like the old red wine barrels, um, like Shiraz, I think, from the Ante Valley. Um, they were like, you know, smell like super strongly of wine, like there's they're stained red, but you don't really get like even the first time we used them, we didn't get that much. Like we've got no colour pickup and from the red wine at least. And wow, even I wouldn't the say really got that much flavour. Um also like the caveat is like when we got when we got this um, barrel from the winery, they'd already had like a um, storage solution in them. Like they put some um, liquid in there um, with some like sulfates, I think, to yeah. stop any like growth, like growth or mold or anything. So like, we had to rinse that out. So that's going to take some of the small amount of the flavor. So I think mm-hmm. if you got like a you know barrel straight from the winery, as soon as it was empty, with still some residual wine in there, and maybe put a delicate beer in there you might get a bit more pick up from the existing wine yeah and did you say you've had a couple of other beers in there between i mean do you get much transference of flavor from one batch of beer to another do you have to sort of be conscious of what you're putting in after the previous one or not so much because i guess by the nature of them the beers will just be that more flavorful yeah we also like we give them a good rinse like fairly aggressive, like hot water rinse, generally between beers. 
Um, so I don't think you like, yeah, I don't think you really get much pick up from the previous beer. Like you get, like I'm, I'm assuming like the, we, you know, the like bacteria that soured this was probably from one of the previous beers we put in it. That even though we, you know, rinsed it kind of aggressively, like it's still, um, there's going to be like, you know, bacteria that penetrates through the wood that you be difficult particularly to over the length kill. of time the liquid's in contact there it doesn't take it takes the most infinitesimally small amount to have survived to sort of yeah. bloom into something after that well we're back here in the call room for episode 154 the return of slow lane brewing Alex, out of context, is joining us in Perth uh, rather than Sydney. We're all a bit discombobulated, but the good news is we've got the classic dark haze in front of us. Let's open that up. Let's pour it out. Alex, can you take us on a little tasting tour here of what we should be getting out of the classic dark haze? Last time you were on, I think you mentioned before, we had the classic haze. So let's talk about how those two sort of fit together and, uh, you know, comparisons. So yeah, this is definitely an example where we um, ran out of good beer names and weren't, weren't very creative here. Um, so yeah, this is the the darker version of our classic haze Hefeweizen, um, known as a Dunkelweizen, uh, which is a traditional dark wheat German beer. Um, so it's showcasing um, instead of sort of still fifty percent wheat malt in the beer um we use a darker wheat and then instead of like a pale pilsner malt uh we're using a lot of like munich like which is very like malty um malt and then on um, some yeah caramel malts and some sort of like small amount of like dark roasted malt just for color um so it's and then from the hops and the yeast perspective it's all all the same the minimal amount of hops and the Hefeweizen strain. Uh, so should be getting hopefully some banana and clove um, fermentation character. And then um, relatively like kind of full-bodied, very malty, slightly sweet, um, yeah, malt character. So I think maybe, maybe this is, I think it's probably bit maltier and sweeter than some of the German ones. Yep. Um, but, yeah. I kind so, of like, no one else seems to complain about that. <laughs> I kind of like how those clovey characters kind of tie in with the sweeter malts and you get almost a strawberry jam thing going on. Um, yeah, it's, got, it's quite alluring. Like, it's got a really lovely alluring character. And once again, yeah, dry. So that Moorish thing of appeal comes through as well you think it's dry to me so i like there's a there's a funny kind of not so much dry probably savory kind of biscuity character to it yeah um and that's yeah i really like that like it's yeah there's something lifted and biscuity about it like i'm always that. worried that the beers are too uh, we make these kind of beers and they're too sweet then no one ever really complains about that. So. Um, what's the process of making this guy, Alex? What's yeah? What do you need to do to if you're going to reproduce this? Uh, <clears throat> so, I guess the hardest thing to get right is like the the yeast character, because um, mm-hmm. I guess yeah, without that kind of like banana and clove flavor, it wouldn't really be right. It'd be a different type of beer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I guess we you know, experiment a lot of different temperatures, uh, fermentation temperatures. And um, we have like very like wide kind of fermenters that we can open the top um, that kind of like help um, the yeast sort of generate addition, increase esters because there's less kind of head pressure on the beer. So I think it helps with this, with this kind of like yeast forward beer. Like a lot of the um, traditional like German breweries that make these kind of Hefeweizen, Dunkelweizen beers will have like kind of very shallow, wide open fermenters. 
Could I, when we had Burnley on, they sort of were talking about the way to get esters out of the beers was to make the yeasts not feel a hundred percent happy. It's about how you can how you can yeah. push them to the edge without actually hurting them so much that they don't live. Is that how you describe it, or how do you think about it when you're sort of dealing with the with the? Yeast so that's that's like, part of it as well. Um, like you would you would kind of more like under pitch rather than over pitch the yeast because then they'll get you more like, um, yeah, esters and fermentation to character. Um, you'd, yeah, kind of go on the higher side fermentation temperatures. I mean, it's all like, it's a balance because if you go too far, then you get like really, you know, get fermentation character, but some, you know, weird kind of not so pleasant fermentation character that you don't want, but and is that a matter of trial and error, or do you sort of how, how did you learn this craft? Let's hear about your backstory and about how you have this body of knowledge to manipulate the yeasts and the flavors like this. Because you know this is a very sophisticated beer that um, no one could make on their first, second, fiftieth go. How do you learn how to make beers like this? Uh, I mean, there's, there's plenty of information out there if you look for it. Like, there's I've definitely read some, you know. German studies on how to make, you know, FOIs and beers and the different, like, you know, um, things you can tweak to get different um, flavor profiles. So I guess there's, you know, German, there's lots of German breweries been making this stuff for a long time. So I guess there's lots of, they're not trying to reinvent the wheel. Like there's like lots of information out there. Um, I was just trying to make it sound so difficult that no one enters this bit of the market and tries to challenge you, brother. I'm just trying to make it, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think we've, this is the second time I've made this beer and like I'm much happier with it this time. Like, so I guess we definitely tweaked stuff since last time. Were there big changes to what you did? No, like, um, like one thing we found with like our, like this, this beer and the um, Hefeweizen is this, like the, this is kind of getting technical, but like the, um, the yeast strain kind of causes like a very um, big pH drop during fermentation. So it can make the beer seem kind of acidic or even sour, even though it's not really. So just trying to like, you know, during the brewing process, just trying to just get like the pH to like kind of end up at the right level and, Kind of gets get that right kind of finished beer flavor, that kind of right finished beer pH. And and how much of that is from testing and tasting along the way? I was fascinated when you were talking about the barrel aging before, as to you know you just sort of you you tasted it and felt like it had got to the right stage. Is that true of most beers, or do you just let them do their thing with the confidence that'll come out right at the end? I mean, this kind of beer, like it's you kind of it's, it's more about like on brew day. Um, and so yeah, brew day and kind of when you pitch the yeast, that like, um, you know, how it will turn out, there's not too much more you could do after that. I mean, like, I'm sure there is stuff you can do. I'm sure bigger breweries do kind of adjustments to finish beer to make it to bring it in the line with their flavor profiles with different um ingredients or yeah, to manipulate the pH. But like, from our perspective, like, we would we wouldn't do that, we'd just kind of. Oh, no, again, I'm just I'm interested from that point of view of the home brewer who might be listening to, you know, this might be one of the first episodes. You know, you talk about you going back to the German books. For some people, they might listen to this podcast and for the first time think, oh, you know what, this is an approachable style that I would have thought was way too difficult for me before. Mm. So, you know, those first couple of steps into this style, any sort of advice for people who, you know, are just getting underway with it? Um. Or make a couple more, you know, make a couple more pale ales first. I mean, I don't think it's, I think it's a style that's like every style is difficult in some way. Like, you know, in some ways I find like pale ales and hoppy beers more difficult because then you got a whole nother variable about like, you know, hops and hop timing and where this doesn't like, the hops don't really matter. You just have a small amount and, just to yeah balance it out slightly but it's not a big part of it so you're all you're trying to 
like we really focused on like the the yeast and the fermentation so there's like one less thing to focus on hmm. um damo's asked uh, a couple more a more scientific kind of brewing question um do you play with the water profile for this beer to help with the ph is that one of the changes you made from the first time that you brewed it yeah yeah so like every time we brew a beer like we'll look at like the water profile um so both in terms of like the um kind of the minerals sort of make up that we want in the finished beer and also like the um the ph levels for the mash Um, I think now would be a good time to try liquid bread. I'm really excited about this. This is a great bit. I love the liquid bread. Let's get on to this. And um, a reminder to everyone in the Zoom room that you can type your questions in. I'll keep some notes here about the uh, the order of the questions and I'll uh, get people to open up their microphones and um, ask them direct to Alex. It's a great reason to join us live here in the Zoom room. Uh, thank you to everyone who's done that tonight. Thank you to everyone who's been doing it lately. If you're listening to the podcast for the first time, we tend to record at about 6.30 on a Thursday night, Australian time. Uh, feel free to check out our Facebook, check out our Instagram, and you'll get the links to come and join us live. Uh, Mr. Warren Wu, do you want to lead us through the beginning of the liquid bread? But more importantly, Alex, do you want to give us a bit of a tasting as to hmm. where we should be starting with the beers and the flavours that we're getting here? I took. I, I did what I used to do when I ran a restaurant there, which is as someone put something into their mouth, I asked them a question about what they were tasting. So, <laughs> yeah. Alex, take your um, time. I'm, and I'd be interested, Alex, if you'd... It, uh, like in talking about the beer, if you mind commenting about the the sweetness, because like it's an interesting conversation. This this the the liquid bread's obviously sweeter, but it makes complete sense with the the weight and the balance of the beer. Um, I'm assuming that's an important part of 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 how you're producing the beers and when what you're keeping in mind when you're when you're making a beer like this and even, yeah, even the other, even the dark case. Yeah. So this beer to me is like definitely on the, on the sweeter side. Um, and I think again, like I think it, lots of the German examples wouldn't be as sweet and malty. Um, this is, I think a bigger kind of fuller beer, um, which we just deliberate because we find like basically like darker beers, like people expect it just based on the color to be like full bodied and especially when it's sort of like eight and a half percent alcohol. So mm -hmm. um yeah, kind of make it that way because yep. we think it works, like not not really I'm not really expecting this beer to be like super like sessionable and you know, drink multiple of them. It is like a more like a full body kind of sipping beer. Can we ask about the German examples, perhaps, that you're talking about there? And again, particularly for Australian listeners rather than our overseas ones, what other Doppelbox might they be able to get their hands on? Do you have sort of particular overseas examples that you think of for this style? I, yeah, so the, um, I always forget what, which one's which, what they're called, but um, there's the, the, Weihein Stefano one um, I had the other day from your pack, I think. Oh, yes. Um, so that's a good little bit of a plug. Just a reminder to go and check out the Cool Room <laughs> store. Grab the Weinstefan one. And um, are you thinking Corbinian or are you thinking uh, they might have been, I don't think they've got a directly named Doppelbock, do they? No. I thought there was, wasn't there? I think no. I don't it's know about the rest of the cool room, but I think the Corbinian's got a similar sweetness to it as this. Like, like I know you you, you say a lot of the German examples try to dry. Oh, Demo, of course, is a speed tougher. Uh, Vetus. Oh, there. There you go. Mugs as well. Vetus. Now, well, the Vetus, as Mugs says, is a Hellesweizenbock. Oh, yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Oh, bloody hell. The we Corbinian. Got... Yeah, the Corbinian was the one that I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's what I think so, I mean, actually, when I had that, I was it was sweeter than I thought it would be, a little mm. more full-bodied. And I don't know, sometimes it's hard to know these things because um, 
obviously if you get the the beers you know had a long journey from germany and sat on the shelf for a while it might taste a bit thinner and than you would expect and it's just because it's, it's aged so maybe that example i had the other day was a bit fresher so yeah it was like i thought it was a bit closer to um alicru bread than what i was expecting Um, the Salvatore, the um, worst German accent ever by Pilana is the other one that, yeah, Damo's just put in. Yeah, I think you're right there, Damo. I reckon I've had that in the laser double box. But yeah, it's it's funny how in our heads, like the German examples probably tend to be drier. But yeah, in reality, a lot of the time they, that malt sweetness does come through. And uh, I think I, I've... I think your double box is a great example. I think it's it makes sense with the styles I've tried, and it's yeah, it's it's really tasty. Um, is it with these ones? Do you put a focus on trying to find German ingredients? Like, do you do you, do you make an effort to go out there and go? Oh, if we can find a, if we can find one, if we can find the German equivalent, well, we use that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to get German yeah. like ingredients, German malt. Um, so, like, we if we're making a German beer, like we we tend to just use yeah German malt just because we know how it will taste. Um, like, when I mean, a lot of ways, I like I'd rather use Australian malt, but mm-hmm. I don't. I haven't had the time to kind of like you know, through test batches and compare to how it would taste. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like hopefully at one point, like, you know, potentially we could make this, if we could make it with Australian malt and have it taste the same, then I would do that. But um, I'm a bit time poor and lazy and I'm just, I know <laughs> if we make it with German malt, it'll be great. So yeah. I've been doing that up to now. Can, can I ask, because we've often asked some of our brewers of late, sort of what food they would pair with uh, the beers that we've been having. And in particular, now that you're venturing a little bit more into food out at the, uh, out at the brewery for, for people who are visiting, if you were going to do a little tasting palette to go alongside each of the beers that we've had tonight, what would you be suggesting? What would have you put with the simple living and how would you have constructed food? Would you have done it around sort of German themed beers or would you be doing something a bit more Australian influenced? It's oh, a big question. Or just um, toasties or just toasties. <laughs> we have, we have, a, um, at the moment we have like a German themed menu at the brewery. Um, but it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's largely like five or six different types of sausages that are paired with the beer. There's so, no shame there. Can I just say that's yeah, the idea. I think that sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so I think they're actually having mind blank what the sausage is called, but there's actually a sausage that has like Bock in the name, which I think is designed to pair with um Bock beers, obviously. So that would you be can't, you need, you need to put beer. that on your social media tomorrow or send it to us so that we can put that on ours because oh, that sounds perfect, can I say? But yeah, we um, yeah, we have like a five different like a sausage platter with five different sausages that um, that we've put, yeah, beer pairings to. Um, awesome. I'm sure there's, like, lots of other non-German food that would pair equally as well with these type of beers. Um, definitely, like, the Doppelbock, I'm thinking, like, like either, like, a, um, you know, kind of hearty, meaty dish or even dessert, maybe. I get that, but I'm also I'm also thinking sort of that sauerkraut is something to cut through the sweetness from time to time as well. That that contrast of flavors can be really fun. Yeah. And I'm looking. Sorry for everyone for the pause there. I was looking at Mr. Warren just in case he was going to. No, uh, no, I've been the question. But if not, we might throw to mugs. For the first of the audience questions. Yeah, I think. that's a good idea. I was just thinking that. Mr. Muggs, feel free to unmute yourself and fire away. Thanks, guys. <clears throat> Hi, Axe. I, I, I probably haven't been 
paying enough attention, but I'm just checking to see, have, have you done a, a Weizenbock at all? Uh, we haven't yet, but we definitely will because, yeah, that's definitely one of my favourite styles. So if we're, you know, if we're, we're definitely, if we haven't done it before next October 1st, then we'll definitely be, we'll do it for then. What's a Weizenbock? It's like a bock, but it's somewhere between a bock or a doppelbock and a Hefweizen. Okay. Yeah. As opposed so, to being a lager. So, what yeah. we might ask either Alex or Muggs, in fact, we might get everyone in the room to do their own continuum of where beers fit. Because I always just find the phrase, apart from the else, Dunkelweizen confusing because I'm thinking both dark and white at the same time, which mm. is my very schoolboy German just interacting and causing me trouble. <laughs> is is uh, Weizen wheat? Or I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, then I go, then I go to Weiss and White, and there, 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 yeah. there's a lot of complication there because Weiss beer means wheat, white beer. Yeah, but it also means it tends to to relate to wheat beer as well. But Weizen means wheat. wheat. Just yeah, yeah, very similar words, but but you'll often find on a um a wheat a, a, a pale wheat beer. Vice beer, which mm. would just mean a white beer. Yeah. Just to I think a, a Weizenbock is just like a strong wheat beer. So it can, it can either be a pale version or a darker version. Yeah. And m- but most most are, are a dark beer. Um, as, as mentioned earlier, Vitus from Vaya Stefan. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now we've got That's that. one of yeah. the few pale Helles. Uh, Weizen, yeah, box, you know, like there's not many around. In fact, I can't name another person. If anyone out there listened to that conversation and figured out what it all meant, feel free to email me. (laughs) I totally understand. (laughs) But some of that stuff, I I think it's a really interesting thing and it it takes us back to that question we had at the very beginning about how do, you know, average Australians interact with these styles of beers and how are you finding that? Is Is it are these styles accessible for most people? Is Oktoberfest the only time that people sort of get involved in them more? Is there a real interest, particularly in Sydney? I'm interested to hear. We know in Melbourne where it is, but are people getting more and more excited about these styles up in Sydney? I mean, I hope so. Like we're, I think we're, our Hefeweizen has been selling quite well and definitely um, like we did a festival the other week and um we have like it's called classic haze and we have a lot of people come up and ask for it just i'll pour me some of your hazy and i I got sick of like correcting people that it was not a hazy pale ale ipa and just poured it for them and don't correct people if you're selling stuff that's the (laughs) no one actually triggered like people just drank it like oh that's good like most people didn't actually trigger that it was nothing like it was you know the german wheat beer not a hazy pale ale ipa so i gotta know if Hazy beers come from popular. Maybe they start that kind of style. Um, you know, benefit off that. Um, like things like a doppelbock, I think just so well as just like a big, like strong, dark beer that's, you know, a bit different. In some ways, it's like a lot more approachable than a stout. It's like very malty, but doesn't have that kind of roasty, um, you know, flavor that can be sometimes a bit astringent and turn off some people. I think also with that phrase hazy, people now just associate it with being an accessible beer and perhaps, mm. you know, particularly people who are new to the style go, oh, well, that's usually fruitier. It's not going to be sort of sour. Or... Yeah. Well, it's not going to be bitter. Like I think yeah. people like it because fresh tasting and it's got some like almost fruity notes, but it's not, yeah, it's not bitter. Yeah, edit that out later. Um, so, yeah, just a question, for one for the times perhaps, is given the recent floods and current floods, indeed, in inland New South Wales and inland Victoria, which covers my hometown, hence my interest, um, do you see that affecting malt supply? I don't know actually when it's grown in these areas, but certainly a lot of grain is, and, and prices, and, you know, is this something that's going to be a bearing in what you decide to make next year, given, you know, there's going to be an impact agriculturally potentially of Australian malt if it's in these affected areas. Yeah. Um, my understanding, like, 
the way like the malt industry work is it's almost like a a global view like so i think because everyone is the price of grains kind of set like a malt kind of set based on like global events so everyone just will sell for the highest price so i know like when i was talking to some australian malt supplies last year like they're like oh like it's been so good in australia at the time like and you know we had great yields but everything's going to go up because of in europe it's been really bad but i'm like but that was europe i'm buying malt from australia from you and like that's just linkedin so you know if there's events anywhere in the world then just like it will shift where people get their malt from so i don't think i don't think i think world events would have more impact like than yeah a local event probably are you pointing a little bit to Ukraine and places like that without being too smart? Because we, you know, yeah. we were speaking That's to German brewers last week, they were talking about, you know, the impact on energy prices in Europe. But Ukraine is a major grain yeah, producer. major grain producer, yeah, for the whole of, yeah. Warren, we were so close to going synchronicity there on major grain producer. That's a... <laughs> yeah, that would be good. I think they call that jinx. Uh, anyway, yeah, it's uh, it's really fascinating to see the kind of the 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 kind of the underlying different issues that might that might pop up. Like, yeah, worldwide malt price hike. Oof, that sucks. Um, I think as a, as a small brewery, though, I guess like like energy prices would impact us far more than like yeah. grain prices. Like, so if you're a big brewery, then you know you have lower margins and grain prices make a big impact but for us like at a small scale like yeah energy prices would be more impactful than you know sense difference in grain um let's keep on with the grain and malt questions because damo's got uh yeah pretty fascinating question um yeah damo did you want to just ask uh evening alex i uh, just want to ask a question um do you have any preference for grain supplies? Because I noticed that a lot of the Ger- people who do German styles and to a lesser extent Belgian styles tend to be quite fastidious in their grain choices, given that they are so grain dependent. Do you mostly get your stuff from Germany and or do you, are you looking to get more stuff from Australia? Uh, so yeah, generally when we're doing like a German style beer, like we'll use um, German grain. So like the two, the two big ones that um, are imported into Australia and easily accessible is like Wyman and um, Vesmoles. Yep. Um, I we'll use, I don't have necessarily have a person preference between the two. We'll use either one. Um, and then for Belgian beers, um, especially those like kind of pale Belgian beers where um, there's, you know, just one malt and, you know, not much else to show like, like using like Dingerman's like Belgian malt, I think it, it does kind of give that characteristic kind of Belgian flavor that you might not get if you use like a similar pale malt from other suppliers. Are there are there any Australian producers that are coming close to any of the qualities, or um, you're hoping maybe in the future they will? Um, hopefully there are. Like it's it's very difficult to assess um without like doing like side by side trials and like a lot of it's like there's like good quality malt in australia like it's it's more like the flavor you get which is it can be hard to replicate um because i guess there's lots of factors that would contribute towards like what the actual flavors you're getting out of the malt so like if we're brewing beers where like a pale ale or something where it was stout where like the base malt flavor is not really showing, shining through. Then we'll just use like a, um, you know, an Australian base malt without thinking twice because we know it's not going to impact the flavor of the final beer. But if it's like a Belgian triple with like one malt or like a German pilsner with like just one malt, we know it's going to have a big impact on the final flavor of the beer. So we're a bit more cautious to switch to another malt without you know doing lots of trials and comparisons. Do you, do you have a favourite German base malt? Um, if I'm doing like a um, like a pilsner or something, like a there's like a Barquet 
Pilsner from Wyoming that I've used in like our Hellas that I really like. We're going to throw to Jacob in a moment to ask his question, but those sort of idea of having sort of side-by-side -side comparisons is fascinating because during the break here, you need to be in the cool room on a Thursday night so you get these little bits of a conversation. I'm going to drag one of those in here. You were talking about the opportunity of being over uh, and, and having a yeast sort of side-by-side -side, uh, of different taps to understand what different yeasts can do to the same base. That was sort of, we didn't record any of that. Can you sort of talk us a little bit through that experience about how you learned, where you went, uh, and, and what you learnt from having different yeasts side by side on the same base beer. Yeah, so that was at White Labs in um, San Diego, the yeast lab over in the States there. Um, and they, they have like a kind of tasting room set up. We can go there and they have all different taps. And the idea is like they, they brew their own kind of um, similar, same recipe of um, grain and hops and use lots of their different yeast strains. Um, and you can just compare the, the flavors, you, different flavors you get from the same base recipe with different yeast strains. And like that was super interesting, interesting to me because like that's the area that fascinates me the most about brewing is like the, the fermentation yeast side. So like, yeah, most of the beers we do, like I would say like a yeast focus, um, but, you know, the differences in flavor is down to the, um, you know, yeast and different fermentation um, you know, criteria you, you can manipulate. Were you surprised by anything out of that experience? Was, did you sort of go away going, I never knew that about a particular yeast or I never knew that that sort of style could have been done in this way or anything like that? Was there was there a takeaway out of that day that you remember? Uh, not, I mean, it's it quite a long time ago now, but nothing that specific, more that um, kind of reinforced my view that like, like you can... Yeah, like you could make the same beer with two different year strains and it would taste very different, but people wouldn't believe that, you know, that was the same beer, just different yeast, like on the, on such a big impact on the flavour. Thank you for letting me go to that little tangent there. Uh, Jacob, if you're still there, to change tax completely again, um, ask your question, brother. Yeah, it's just a follow-up, I guess, on what Alex raised before. And also, sorry, I forgot to say before, thank you, Alex, for doing this today and sharing your beers. I'm, I'm really enjoying them. Um, the second one on the lineup, particularly tasty, really excited me. Uh, but I was just going to say, you were talking about energy prices being probably one of the biggest impacts to your business. And I was wondering, are you taking any measures to try and mitigate that in terms of producing energy locally via solar or some other means? Is that something you're looking at or doing? Uh, yeah, I mean, solar is something we've been looking at for a while. Um, but um, I, mean, I guess if we, certainly if we like own the building in the, where the brewery is, we probably already have solar, but like we're leasing the building. So it's a bit more complicated in terms of, you know, installing it and, you know, seeing who pays for it and the payoff period and that kind of thing. But definitely like that's more front of mind that we need to do it sooner. That's, yeah, like. Sounds like energy prices, electricity bill is already quite high and it sounds like it's going to get worse. So. Absolutely right. Look, that's a, that's, a, that's a kind of grim note to finish on. Let's talk about some positive <laughs> things. First of all, uh, if, you, if, if and when, and it's not going to be too far away, we sell out again in the cool room, Shopify, where can people in Victoria or in Australia get your beers? And then more generally, where would you be advising people in Australia to grab your beers from if you're not coming to the brewery there in Botany? Um, so, you know, definitely our online store has a lot of our beers. We have like a stockist list on the website, um, which has people that may stock our beers. Like, because we make so many different beers, like there's not many places they're going to have every single one. Um, but if you start with um, that list and, yeah, that, that that will, you know, hopefully get you somewhere local that is likely to have some of our beers. Good answer. And where do we find your social media? Like uh, we'd love to see the new beers coming out. What's the what's the handles, as the kids would say? Yeah, it's Slow Lane Brewing um, or the, you know, Instagram and Facebook. And we don't really use Twitter, so... No one other than me uses Twitter. I just keep on saying that and hope that one day someone else will. But uh, Alex, look, 
Thank you tonight. It's it's been fantastic to have you back on again. The beers you make are fantastic. I've had a couple of international visitors lately, and your beers. I've been making up little six packs of Australian beer to give to people to take home. Your beers are such fascinating examples of Australian takes on European styles, and I love it because it's it's it's, it's our take. It's Australian take on the kind of flavours that we find fascinating. You do that so beautifully, mate. I loved my visit up to uh, to your brewery and your venue uh, when I got to go up there a couple of months ago. I highly, highly encourage everyone to go and visit Botany when they can. And, um, mate, taking the extra time, having travelled over to Perth, we appreciate the fact that you've been on the cool room with us tonight. Good. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Alex. Have a great night. Thanks. And as ever, that means I'm going to stop doing the recorded bit of the show. And if you're not joining us live here in the Zoom room, well, then the podcast is going to cut out. This conversation will go on and we're going to taste the rest of our amazing tasting pack. But you don't get to be part of that unless you're live on the Zoom room on a Thursday night. <laughs>